0: Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Samar. Today's show is live and um, I'm broadcasting from our beautiful studios in Tampa, Florida. Um, on today's program, we're going to be um, speaking about um, foreign uh, influence on the U.S. government, uh, especially from the Middle East, especially uh, the United Arab Emirates. Uh Summer is also going to be live with me. Summer, who are we going to have on the show today?
1: Good morning, Ahmed. We're going to be talking to John Hoffman. He's a political science PhD candidate. He writes about the Middle East and Islam. And he publishes with, uh, I think, different publications. The latest one was The National Interest. And uh, very, very interesting. um, uh, outlook that he has, he believes that U.S. foreign policy, vis-a-vis the Middle East, has to go through an overall, uh, like uh, total, <laughs> different uh, approach uh, to the problem, especially in light of the invasion of the Ukraine. So I think our listeners will be very excited to listen to his uh, input about how the U.S. should proceed with these authoritarian systems. That are uh, wrecking havoc in the Arab
0: world. We're going to get into that right after this uh, break. So, um, this music break will be back uh, with Summer and I. This is True Talk on WMNF.
2: مش شايف فيكم حد انتوا عيال عايشين عال حد كل الناس عارفك وعال كل الناس عارفه اني غشيب قمري في يوم احتدت الحد مش تفخم والله
1: بجد، واقف وسط كل هزد ما تربيتش انه بقى في السمسيش عندي الشواليات انا عين ابيشت المريات
2: بيشت حروبي بضراب باشي وسط بلادي باتبلي تاريخ قرنا جن اصابه عسنا ببساطه هتنجح لو في اراده
0: محتاجتش حتى حد ننسى النفسيه يا لوت ارجو متني بتني على التليفون حطوني لما صرت تفو النوم تقول تيجي عرضه كوره تيجي جول سجود 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 قاتل الملوك ملوك ملوك
2: مفيش هروب 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 من الاسود من الاسود شغلنا من اللي قان الحقود ملهوش مكان تنكشني تشوف جنار ويتيت الجيران ربك ربا كنتاني في اللسان اقول لكم بالكلام ينزوكش جاي من السلام مخوك ملهوش امان انا عالمه تقول تمام فما تقول ليش امان انا نايس وفايف جيتبت كل الجوايب حطيت السمي فزاي شربت كل اللي عايز انا عايز زي ما انا عايز
0: Welcome back to True Talk on WMNF eighty point five. Interesting choice of music, summer.
1: I was not able to hear the music,
0: Ahmed. Oh, you weren't. Okay. <laughs> well, uh,
1: we need to remind our listeners, Ahmed. Well,
0: about what? You're always We're reminding thunder. them. You're yeah. always reminding them about something, and there's some sort of echo happening from your end. Are you in a uh, empty room that doesn't have any anything on the walls?
1: No, I'm in my kitchen,
0: just okay. like. Yeah, lastly, the same thing. Cooking. You must have not a cooking. very, you must have a very large kitchen because uh, it's echoing. Sorry about
1: that. It might be the internet.
0: No, the internet doesn't echo. The internet will crackle or there'll be some distortion. <laughs> but um, do you have a very, or do you have really high ceilings? That you? I've never been to your kitchen, so I don't know.
1: Is They're it? They're not that. High. Is it very spacious? Yeah, it is a big room. So, do I need to go to a a smaller room? I mean,
0: it's better if you're in a smaller room that is more, you know, that has some furniture because it absorbs the sound and it doesn't bounce off the walls. So then it causes an echo. But I mean, you know, maybe during the break you can do that. I'm not sure how mobile you are. But um, what do we need to remind our listeners about?
1: The fundraising, yeah, Ahmed, next week, isn't
0: it? That's right. Right. So, you know, as our listeners know, WMNF is a community radio station Uh, like other community and public radio stations. We rely on our listener supporters for support and for contributions to continue on air to bring you this awesome programming. So we do this uh, two or three times a year. Right now, it's been about three times a year. And um, next Thursday at this time, that's what we'll be doing. So we will be counting on your support, please make your contributions, prepare to help us uh, next Thursday, because this station and our show depends on it. So we're counting on you uh, at that time. On today's uh, program, our guest, uh, John Hoffman, will be speaking about a, um, a, an important topic. That's actually something that's also of interest to me, are because for a long time I've uh, been concerned about international meddling um and foreign influence on our government. And we often talk about the Israel lobby, but um, we don't talk necessarily about the um, Arab monarch or the, um, I guess, Arab country lobbies. And to differentiate that from uh, the Arab people, um, unlike somehow, I guess, if, if you compare the Arab countries that are surrounding Israel... For Israelis, for Jews in Israel, uh, Israel is a democracy, wouldn't you say? Somewhere, I mean, it's not for all the people there. It's not equal for you know the Arabs and for the Muslims and the Christians, but for Jews in Israel, Israel is somewhat of a representative democracy. There, people vote for their government. If you're Israeli, yes,
1: that's why it is considered an apartheid system because it has one policy and one system for only uh, the Jews but not for Christians and not for uh, Muslims. But With the Arab world, unfortunately, our government uh, is supporting uh, authoritarian regimes that not only are authoritarian over their own people, but they spread their authoritarian uh, tendencies to the rest of the world. And you have seen with your country, Egypt, when there was um, uh, the the, the January 21st revolution, the United Arab... The 25th revolution you know how much meddling there was from these authoritarian systems because they didn't want a spillover of what is happening in tunisia and even with the tunisian people ahmed we know that uh, united arab emirates was involved with the coup Of uh, Sayyid Qayes and um, you know it's not enough that like the Egyptians have to deal with their own government and own authoritarian systems. No, these countries are getting help from outside their borders to make sure that the people have never uh, are not represented and uh, do not have any form of democratization.
0: So I was bringing that point up just to say that we often talk about the Israeli lobby or the pro-Israel lobby in America. Uh, today we'll be talking about foreign influence of Arab governments on the United States, and but to differentiate, that, and we'll talk to our 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 guest uh, to explain that a little bit more if there's a difference. But it, the pro-Israel lobby are Americans who are maybe dual citizens, Israelis or Americans who are pro-Israel that are lobbying the government. In the other situation, uh, these are governments over there that are lobbying or influencing. Um, our policies in Washington. And now, with us, uh, joining us is uh, John Hoffman. He's a PhD candidate at George Mason University, specializing in the Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. Welcome to True Talk.
2: Oh, thank you, Samar, and thank you, Ahmed.
0: Thanks. Thanks for Are you so? Is this still accurate? Uh, you're a PhD candidate at George Mason, or are you finished?
2: Yes, sir. St- still a candidate. Uh, hope to be finished within the next year. <laughs> OK, good luck with
0: that. So I'm looking at an article that you wrote in foreign policy that says Washington's blank check for the United Arab Emirates must end. And the Ura- United Arab Emirates, for those that may not be familiar, it's a very tiny country in the Middle East. It's a monarch that um, has um, like their famous city there that's called Dubai. Many people have heard of that. Um, so why did you write this, and what did you mean by this blank check of the UAE, and why should it end?
2: So the main emphasis behind the article, uh, this one in particular, was in Washington, the UAE has been able to present itself, uh, whether it be through extensive uh, lobbying or extensive PR campaigns, it's been able to prevent it uh, present itself as a type of solution to America's sup- supposed problems in the region. And this, to people like myself, was a little concerning because people like me view countries such as the United Arab Emirates, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and other autocracies in the country as the root of the region's problems and the reason why I wanted to write this piece was to challenge the idea that the United Arab Emirates is uh, a lucrative partner for the United States and challenge the broader idea that America's doubling down and committing to the uh, authoritarian status quo in the region is somehow beneficial to the people of the Middle East, obviously, but also our own interests. So how,
0: how what are, when you say our own interests, the U.S. government's own interests, what, what are those interests in the region um, when it relates to the UAE and other Arab Gulf countries or um, Arab countries in the Middle East?
2: Well, so I would say that American interests in the region have evolved considerably over the past couple of decades. So traditionally, American interests in the region were centered around things such as continuing the free supply of oil, uh, general "quote unquote" stability, um, nuclear non-proliferation, and things like that. But I think now the the main Driver or the main calling card for American interest in the region is great power competition. The idea that if the United States steps back in the Middle East, that Russia or China would be able to fill this void. And therefore, we need partners such as the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Israel. We need to continue supporting them almost unconditionally to keep them from turning to to Russia or China and especially as the United States seeks to pivot to Asia and now Eastern Europe and pivot away from the Middle East countries such as the UAE are viewed as the essential components of Washington's strategy to offshore its regional burden to to uh, allied nations but it, that's the notion that I really wanted to challenge was one the idea that these countries pursue interests that are concomitant with ours, because I would argue that they do not. They're responsible for uh, the counter revolutions that we've seen in the region. They're responsible for the atrocious human rights abuses we've seen in the region. And, you know, these authoritarian governments have constructed political economic and social structures to suit only their own interests, not the interests of the people, not the interests of stability, but only their own interests. So I wanted to challenge the idea that these American quote-unquote partners are, are really that.
0: So you're basically asserting that uh, the UAE and uh, others like them in the region are not reliable partners for American interest in the long term.
2: Precisely, because if America truly desires stability within the region – I think American foreign policy towards the Middle East has been so misguided for decades, and you know, influenced by a slew of factors, whether it be uh, Orientalism and racism, or whether it be in incredible amounts of, of lobbying from foreign countries and uh, lobbies within the United States. I think American foreign policy has been so misguided and. You know, grabbing at things such as, oh, you know, the problem is the problem is Iran or the problem is a Sunni Shia divide or the problem is a pro United States and anti United States divide. But when truly the greatest divide within the region is between these authoritarian governments and the people, this this is, in my opinion, the the root of instability in the region is this artificial autocratic status quo. Which is upheld by American power.
0: What's the size of the UAE in comparison for people? You know, like how big is it for listeners to kind of understand?
2: Uh, are, you talking, uh, yeah, are you talking geographic size, or are you talking population?
0: Yeah, kind of both. Like, what 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 is this country?
2: So, geographic size, the UAE is quite small. I don't have the exact. Statistics in front of me, um, but in terms of population, and this is where it's it's most interesting. In the UAE, only uh, about one million of the nine million people that reside in the UAE are Emirati citizens. The rest of them, the the remaining seven to eight million, are expats. They're they're foreign workers. Um, so. so with this population of roughly 9 million or or close to 10 million by now, probably only about 1 million or 1.5 million of these are actually Emirati citizens. The vast majority are, are foreign workers. So this country is made up of about
0: a million people, which is, I guess, um, and compare it to Florida. It, Kind of takes up. There's. I I looked up uh, something on the internet, and it just shows you the UAE map just opposed over Florida, and it takes about just like kind of central Florida from Tampa Bay to Daytona. Kind of goes across. It's not that large, and it has a million people citizens. But what have they just for our listeners that may not be familiar with it? When you say some of you know bad things that they've been doing in the region, can you just give us some highlights over the past decade? what the UAE has been doing in the region.
2: Sure. So in the region itself, the UAE has, especially since 2010, 2011, has really been at the forefront of the regional counter-revolution. What does that mean? And so what, what I mean by this is following the Arab uprisings in 2011, which saw widespread mass mobilization for change, Countries such as the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt after 2013, after the military coup and LCC came back to power. These countries have really been at the forefront of returning the region back to the authoritarian status quo. They, they fear these democratic advances because it challenges the broader authoritarian status quo in the region and thereby challenging their own rule. So in doing so, the UAE has been instrumental in aiding Egypt following the uh, the military coup in 2013 that re- removed Mohamed Morsi. They've been instrumental in Libya aiding uh, General Haftar uh, in his campaign against the UN-recognized government. And the UAE has actually been uh, – providing them with, with heavy weaponry, has been funding uh, Russian mercenaries in Libya with the the Wagner Group, which is now fighting in Ukraine. The UAE has also been a staunch ally of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Mm-hmm. They have, uh, yes, and, and they've actually participated with Russia in counterterrorism operations. Uh, but weren't, quote,
0: weren't they also, they took credit for carrying out bombing campaigns within Syria at some point, highlighting their women fighters that are flying, you know, uh, these jets, fighter jets into Syria.
2: Yes, absolutely. So this is, you know, all of this is part of this broader, what I would call counter-revolutionary campaign. This is the, the United Arab Emirates wants to see autocrats remain in the Middle East. They want their own autocracy to be upheld. And it's, it's not just within the region. And also, I, I should mention, they're an active party to the di- disastrous campaign in Yemen, yeah. um, which has resulted in the world's worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. But I, I would also mention that the UAE has been actively working with countries outside the Middle East to protect their own autocracies, namely China. The UAE is an active party. In China's persecution of its Uyghur Muslim minority, Uh, the the Associated Press wrote a really interesting report about how the UAE operates a Chinese-run black site in the country. And they have – yeah, and they've detained numerous Uyghurs and sent them back to China where they face almost certain uh, imprisonment. Summer? Summer?
1: If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. Ahmed and I are talking to John Hoffman, who is a political science PhD candidate at George Mason University. He specializes in Middle East politics and uh, Islam. Uh, Good to talk to you, uh, John. I have been following your uh, writings. You just uh, uh, published, uh, I think you published in Foreign Policy and the National Interest, and some people are Saying, um, uh, John, that if the U.S. does not engage and re-engage with these authoritarian uh, regimes, um, China and Russia might step in. And you do have a different point of view. You do not think that these, uh, that China and Russia, due to their unique uh, maybe uh, characteristics or systems will not be as engaged in uh, with the united arab emirates or with saudi arabia or with such regimes can you explain that can you elaborate why you don't see that if we don't reconnect uh, with these systems uh, china and russia really will not be taking our place and having a foothold there
2: of course and so the, the main reason why I wrote this article was there were so – after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there have been so many articles written about, you know, it's the United States' responsibility to remend these relationships with Saudi, the UAE. It's the United States' responsibility to – uh bring confidence back in the strength of american resolve and power it's it's what you know it's the united states responsibility to recommit to these actors because it's something that you know it, it's a failure on our part to embrace these actors and and i challenge this on a couple from a couple standpoints but the one specifically i challenge the idea that these actors could Turn to Russia or China. And I challenge the idea that Russia or China would be able to or even willing to occupy a U.S. vacuum in the Middle East. And, and there's a couple reasons that I list for this. Um, one, undoubtedly, Russia and China have made inroads in the Middle East. Uh, you know, Russia intervened directly in Syria. Russia is operating mercenaries in Libya. They've expanded their uh, arms exports profile throughout the region. And China has now become the region's largest oil importer, investor, and trade partner. But all of these advances that Russia and China have made in the Middle East are underneath the political insecurity order upheld by the Middle East. I mean, uh, uh, upheld by the United States. I'm sorry. Because the United States upholds this order, Russia and China are able to expand their influence in the region at very little cost. So that's, that's one of the main reasons. The other reason is both Russia and China are having considerable economic troubles at home, especially Moscow, after the disastrous invasion of Ukraine. And... Not only are they hindered in their ability to really, you know, flex their power abroad, but they're also limited by the authoritarian nature of their own countries. They have to devote so much, uh, so many resources to internal policing in order to maintain their own authority domestically because their own governments are authoritarian and illegitimate. And I think, you know, the – if anything – the fact that partners or quote-unquote u.s partners in the region have sided with russia over their invasion of ukraine after how disastrous russia's invasion of ukraine has been i mean it's been horrible uh the idea that russia would somehow be able to Project enough military power in the Middle East. You know, they, they look how horrible they've done when it's a country bordering them. But the fact, the, the idea that they could project enough power in the Middle East to uphold some sort of political or security status quo, as the United States has done, is just—it's just very far-fetched.
1: Actually, John, what you're saying uh, is that the, these authoritarian regimes in the Middle East are the ones who are exploiting the U.S. and manipulating the great power politics that uh, maybe later on you can mention what you mean by that. Uh, but like how, how, for instance, is the United Arab Emirates manipulating the U.S. fears that, okay, if I don't engage, uh, Russia and China will be engaging. So can you explain that?
2: Of course. So the UAE in particular has... In the past couple of years, when it comes to arms sales, when it comes to U.S. commitment in general, the UAE has been very vocal in saying that, hey, if you know, look at the, the sale of the F35 uh, excuse me, the F-35 fighter jets, they've been very straightforward in saying, "Hey, if you don't give these to us, we'll just go somewhere else." You know They've been having Russian and Chinese weapon expos. In the, in the United Arab Emirates where, you know, Moscow and Beijing come and show off their, their weaponry and, and all that. The, they've been very blunt in saying, hey, we'll, we'll go elsewhere. And this is the same in terms of American commitment to the region. The UAE has said, hey, Washington, you want to decrease your presence in the region. We can help you do that, but you need to back us. You need to give us the support that we need to do so. But that's where the paradox comes in that that I wanted to highlight was the very countries that are responsible for destabilizing the region are reaching back out to the United States and saying, give us more. So we can stabilize the region, but when in fact they're actually the ones behind the destabilization. So it's, it's a constant negative feedback loop where American foreign policy is led to believe that what they're doing is somehow stabilizing and beneficial. But when we're undermining our own interests through our own actions. There
1: is, I think, uh, a news item that came maybe two days ago, John, uh, Axios, uh, it mentioned that the UAE uh, and the U.S. might have a formal security commitment and you expressed fear about it. Can you explain what that is? What's the commitment and why are you afraid of uh, such a formal security commitment? I want you to explain exactly what that means.
2: Yes, so I, this news is quite concerning. A Formal security commitment to the United Arab, Emir- Arab Emirates would entail the United States coming to the defense of the Emirati government if they were ever attacked. Now, on, on the surface, this might not sound like the biggest, uh, biggest deal in the world. You know, the United Arab Emirates uh, is it, currently engaged in a war in Yemen, but the odds of somebody launching... A large-scale campaign against the UAE is pretty far-fetched. But what they want this commitment for is not necessarily the protection of the United Arab Emirates, but they want this commitment for the protection of the regime itself in Abu Dhabi. Mm. A formal commitment would require the United States to come to the defense of the regime, whether faced by an external or internal threat. To the rule of the of the prevailing autocracy, and this agreement in particular, coming from the uh, the Axios article you were talking about, it's interesting because it says that apparently it, the rumors are is that the Biden administration has actually sent a draft agreement to the UAE. Um, so apparently they have a draft agreement in their hands, and cor- uh, apparently. The agreement is along the lines of what France currently has with the UAE. France has a security commitment with the UAE uh, that includes a defense commitment. If the UAE is attacked, that France would come to its defense. Notably, it doesn't work the other way around. If if France is attacked, the UAE does not come to their defense. But it's a one-way security agreement. But what's most concerning about this is... Despite the human rights abuses that the UAE is engaged in, despite the interventions within the region that it's engaged in, and despite the international human rights abuses it's engaged in, places like China, a formal U.S. security guarantee would mean that despite political party in power in the United States, despite whatever the UAE does, the United States would have to come to the defense of the regime.
1: But, uh, you know, I find this very strange, uh, John, because we are selling them or uh, going to resell them amazing amount of uh, jet fighters, weaponry. I mean, are we just like making our economy here better in the U.S. at the expense of the people there? Like, why are we selling them these huge amounts of billions of dollars worth of weapons if they cannot use it to defend them, their, their own uh, country? And I think you, it is called like the little Sparta. It's such a small country, but uh, the the amount of money they spend on on armament is is ridiculous, and yet they can't defend themselves.
2: No, exactly. I'm missing,
1: I'm missing something here.
2: No, no, it's you're not. You're not. It, it, it's it's it is a paradox in and of itself. You know when. You know, we talk about all the time in academia, you know, what makes a country strong, you know, militarily and things like that. It comes down to really two things. One is uh, their economy. Two is the size of their population, their potential power that they're able to mobilize. The UAE only has one million citizens. The uh, other nine million or so um, expats – are not likely to ever take up arms for the UAE or anything like that. So I guess from a from that perspective, the United Arab Emirates is rather weak. They only have one million citizens. But from a broader point of view, I would say that the reason why we keep selling them so much weaponry is it really comes down to lobbying within the United States here. You have the military industrial complex you have the the israel lobby and you have now a amalgamation of the israel lobby and the lobbying of these Arab autocratic regimes, and I, I wrote a piece for Responsible Statecraft at the Quincy Institute on this, how their lobbying efforts have really merged. Israel is going to bat for the Emiratis, for the Saudis, for the Egyptians uh, in, in the halls of Congress. You know, they're they're going to bat for these countries and really trying to, you know, advance their shared agendas now. And I think when it comes to weaponry, you know, that's a low. Low dangling fruit for the United States. For some reason, we have this idea that the more we throw weapons <laughs> somewhere, the the better things will turn out. I mean, you can it, it, everyone has seen how horrible that plays out domestically here uh, in the past couple of weeks. But it it's it's similarly similarly as disastrous abroad. It it's it's why I wrote the article saying we need a fundamental rethinking to what constitutes security and who were were funding and arming and things like that.
0: If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. We're speaking to John Hoffman. He's a PhD candidate at George Mason University and specializing in um, Middle East politics and political uh, Islam. When it, it comes as far as um, the... It seems like all the moves that the UAE is doing is uh, self-preservation. Uh, when you when you speak about their role in the counter-revolutions, their role in uh, propping up and supporting uh, authoritarian regimes, and this uh, document that they're asking the United States to sign, or this agreement that they will come to the defense, military defense of the UAE government, um, if they face any, you know, it, domestic or foreign threats, meaning if their own people try to rise up against them, they're expecting the United States to intervene and protect their positions. Um, I guess this may even go further than the agreement that the United States signed with uh, Saudi, where they promised to protect them from any type of threat, um, which in some ways even Al-Qaeda had pointed to as a reason why they started targeting the United States, because they felt that the United States was protecting a this dictatorship regime that was suppressing their people, especially after the um, first Gulf War. Uh, Bitlan specifically uh, refused or rejected that uh, the, the Saudi royal family would turn to the United States to allow non-Muslims to come on Saudi soil And rejected that, and because of that, it created this friction. And then um, after that, they started groups like Al Qaeda that are, of course, you know, terrorist and are are completely, um, you know, their their mechanism, whatever tools that they use, are not justified. However, it is one of the reasons those types of groups uh, come up as a result of authoritarian and oppressive regimes, and then they turn their attention to the United States, not necessarily, and this is based on what experts have written before, not necessarily because they hate the freedom in the U.S., but they see that the U.S. is defending the countries that are oppressing them, or the U.S. is occupying their lands. So it seems like this is just the same cycle repeating itself. If the United States signs such an agreement with an oppressive regime in the region, and the UAE takes advantage of it, and they suppress their own population, would not just create more terrorism and more uh, radical groups
2: no i i would i would certainly argue yes and the reason being it it, like you just said is groups such as al-qaeda or daesh isis whatever you want to call it you know when when osama bin laden was interviewed he's uh when he was still alive he said we're not attacking the united states because of what they believe in he said, "We're attacking the United States because of their foreign policy." He said, "If we were attacking them for their ideals or their beliefs, we would be attacking uh, Sweden." He said, "You know, we're attacking because of the foreign policy." Now, obviously, everything that Al Qaeda and Daesh and those groups do is absolutely, you know, d- d- atrocious and d- detestable. But it speaks to a broader sense of anger in the region because so many people will see that it's the United States who are upholding these authoritarian governments. And when they try to voice peaceful change, as they did in 2011, when they try to challenge the uh, the status quo, the United States swoops in and buttresses all of these authoritarian governments, tries to engineer outcomes in a way that will be favorable to Washington. And this really all boils down to support for governments such as the UAE for governments such as Egypt or Saudi Arabia or uh, you know other governments in the region and a formal security commitment a type of you know where this could go like some sort of NATO in the Middle East which even you know when Trump was president he advertised for you know such an agreement would require the united states by law regardless of who is in the white house regardless of if it's trump who loves these autocrats because he wants to be one himself or whether we have you know somebody who's very liberal in the white house it would require washington by law to come to the defense of these countries so in in a way it would require the united states by law to support The underlying source of instability in the region, which are these governments.
0: Right. And it just seems like um, if we want real stability in the region as the United States, we would support long term policies that would actually allow for people to be, you know, to have be part of participatory governments, uh, whether it's democracy. I mean, that was the whole thing the excuse of going to war um, in Iraq is to export freedom. But, and that's why at the same time people saw the hypocrisy in the US policy that you want to push freedom um, and democracy in Iraq and Iran, but then you don't want it that the United States doesn't want in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and and any of these other countries. And I think this uh, undermines the legitimacy of the United States. And when people see why are people, why are groups like uh, Al Qaeda or uh, ISIS and others, uh, are attractive to some individuals because of these discrepancies so if you, you know, are, are there efforts in Washington I mean do people in Washington get this idea that by supporting these authoritarian regimes you're actually increasing radicalization and the potential for terrorist groups to thrive and not supporting the you know the um, democracy revolutions that took place in the Middle East that actually undermines long-term uh, stability do they get it in washington or they just know it and look the other way and look for you know expediency or what's going on
2: I, I think it's both i i i find it hard to believe that some of these people don't realize this um and and i think but i think some of them genuinely are persuaded perhaps that authoritarianism is the only way to go and you know their ideas are buttressed by old orientalist and racist views that oh the middle east isn't ready for democracy or some people point to islam and say oh you know they're they're muslim and you know islam is not you know compatible with democracy you know some very old stereotypical uh Mm -hmm. racist Tropes, you know, that, that still are, are quite prevalent uh, throughout the United States and, and in certain circles in Washington. But I think one key factor is the amount of money that is in D.C. from these governments, from uh, the Israeli government. And the Israeli government has a vested interest in keeping the authoritarian status quo in the Middle East. I've, I've written about this a lot. And the amount of money that they pump into Washington – I mean, some of, you know, if you look at the uh, the financial filings of some of these think tanks, whether it be, uh, you know, even mainstream think tanks, when you look at their financial filings, they receive tremendous amounts of money from the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Israel. And of course, they're going to advance narratives that are, you know, connected to their donors. And when people... Voice opinions that are against the status quo, that are against their desires, like I did with the the foreign policy article, the backlash is often quite severe. At, when I published the foreign policy article, it was several months of me getting harassed, threats. By who? And, uh, by by uh, people on Twitter, by think tank individuals in D.C., um, it, it, it was, it was quite, it was quite the, uh, it, it was quite the affair. And, you know, I'm, you know, personally, I'm, I'm a 26 year old PhD student. So, you know, it's, it, it's easy to go after me. I don't have any, you know, uh, real affiliation other than just being a student at George Mason.
0: But even a student and- at George Mason is seen as a, enough of a threat that they would, you know, go after you in that way.
2: Yes. And, and that's why I was quite surprised. I remember meeting with the dean of my school and joking with him and said, you know, if, you know, th- they got this worked up over a uh, a 26 year old uh, grad student who wrote an article questioning the US UAE relationship. Uh, 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 you know, in me myself, I have no connections with foreign governments or funding or anything like that Uh you know, at, at Mason, where you know, <laughs> I barely make them up above the poverty line here. So if somebody's handing out checks, they're sending it to the wrong address. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's it, it, it just shows when you challenge these narratives, when you express alternative opinions, they they will clap back at you. Yes, summer.
1: Again, if you're just joining us, <laughs> we're talking to John Hoffman. He's only 26 years old, political science PhD candidate um, at George Mason University. I don't mean to laugh here, John, but really I'm I'm shocked that they would come uh, also after you. I thought it was only Ahmed and I <laughs> for our uh, reporting. But I want to uh, move a little bit uh, forward uh, because you think that, you know, you, you are speculating that maybe Trump would come back in 2024. Um, What could happen to this relationship? Because we are already seeing uh, that the Biden administration is doing um, like uh, more uh, more visits. Like I think the CIA, head of the CIA was in Saudi Arabia, kind of trying to mend ties. We know that Biden administration was very vocal about the uh, assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, are you seeing that this administration is doing exactly what a Trump administration would have done? And you are also afraid that Trump might come back in 2024. What is your projection for the future? What could be happening? What can be we can be looking at?
2: So first on the question of, of what Biden has done, Biden, he, he talked a big game on the campaign trail you know he said he'd make saudi arabia pariah he said the united states would you know check its values at the door and not sell them for oil uh, that's quite ironic given everything that's happening right now um but he talked a big game he said no more blank checks for each for uh, trump's favorite dictator referring to abdel al sisi in egypt so he talked a big game now biden in office has been completely the opposite He's passed through numerous, incredibly large weapons uh, sales to these countries. He has not held Saudi Arabia accountable, despite the CIA report linking MBS to uh, Khashoggi's murder, uh, his murder. And he's really not at all been the Biden of the campaign trail, I think. One of the reasons why we're seeing now him reaching back out to Saudi Arabia and these countries is because Biden's approval ratings here in the United States are just atrocious. Uh, the people on both sides of the aisle, obviously the Republicans will never like him, but, but liberals too are very fed up with, with Biden. Um, I think with skyrocketing gas prices, with inflation as bad as it is, and with the midterms in 2022 coming around and of course the 2024 election i think the white house is really panicking and i do see uh, a strong possibility of trump coming back because every poll that i've seen it's except for maybe one or two hypothetical polls that put donald trump against either joe biden or kamala harris as the front runner in 2024 the vast majority of these polls have Trump winning. And and I'm, you know, personally, I'm from a rural area. You know, I I came up to the D.C. area for school, but I'm from a a very rural area. And everywhere you go in these rural areas, you still see Trump flags. You see Trump won flags. You know, that sentiment is still very strong in this country. And, you know, Trump embraced these autocrats in the Middle East, You know, by pushing through so many weapon sales, sensitive nuclear technology, overlooking all of their human rights abuses. Um, We know now that a Saudi investment fund invested two billion in Jared Kushner's private equity firm. So there's so much corruption going on here. If, if, If Trump comes back, I think it'll just be a more overt embrace of these autocrats. But at the end of the day, Biden is not really doing that much different than Trump did. It's just without all the fanfare. Uh,
1: John, actually, I have uh, maybe a sort of a hypothetical uh, question. Let's say that the uh, Biden ad- administration listens to your advice and that we should really be pursuing democratic systems and not uh, such authoritarian regimes in the Middle East. Don't people in Washington fear that maybe or they have this stereotypical uh, orientalist idea that, oh, once there is the democracy in the Middle East. They don't want to sell us oil. Uh, they want to destroy the state of Israel. I mean, what is it about democratizing uh, the Middle East that scares people in Washington so much?
2: I think what truly scares them the most is if you had democratic governments rise in the Middle East, then you would have countries that are more accountable to their own people than they are accountable to Washington's interests. And I think that's where the crux of the the concern lies. And I think it is informed, like you just said, by a, a great deal of Orientalism and I would say just outright racism that so many in Washington still view, you know, if democracy were to emerge in the Middle East, that you would have, you know, these radical governments, you know, ruling these countries. That oh, they're not, you know, people in the Middle East aren't ready for democracy. And these are these are all stereotypical racist tropes that have been well debunked. Um, but I think it, it boils down to the United States views. The emergence of democracy in the region as a threat because these countries would then become more accountable to their own people than the United States. I don't think they would ever stop selling oil to the United States. The, the oil is a global commodity, and these countries that sell oil, they need it for their own lifeline. I mean, Saudi Arabia, the UAE. The idea that they would just stop pumping oil or uh, you know close close the straits, you know, they this is their own economic lifeline. So. I, I would push back against the idea when people argue in Washington that we need to maintain these relationships for for uh, access to oil. But I would, I would also say that if the United States did not learn after the 1970s oil embargoes, uh, when we were rationing gas in this country and it was so bad, the fact that the United States has been so slow to transition to green energy and are still so dependent on uh, these autocracies – I think it just speaks to a broader failure of U.S. policy. We're almost uh, finished with the program, but if you're joining us this late,
0: we're speaking to John Hoffman. He's a uh, PhD candidate student from George Mason University, which is in the Washington, D.C. area. He uh, specializes in political Islam as well as Middle East geopolitics. Um, with If there are free and fair elections in these countries, which countries like the UAE and Saudi Arabia are... Um, you know, spending so much, so many, so much resources to stop the spread of that, and did so during um, the uprisings or the Arab Spring. Um, if there are fair and free elections, and I think this was even referenced in one of the um, WikiLeaks cables, which is basically um, State Department uh, cables that were leaked via WikiLeaks, that, uh, that in the region you would have. Uh, what's called political Islam come to power or individuals who are religious um, or part of religious movements uh, would be part of the leadership or involved in government making or policy making. And that uh, is seen by those in the UAE as well as Saudi Arabia as, as a big threat. And they often use it, it seems, according to um, things like WikiLeaks, as a scare tactic to the West and to the United States that, hey, if we're not in power, uh, the autocrats, the royal families, then the alternative are these uh, Muslim groups uh, who are radical. Um, is that a fear in Washington that political Islam will come to power? And why does Washington fear that, you know, in addition to the accountability of the people? Um, because, or is, or do they just see that democracy is only for people in, in that region that are not religious, that are secular?
2: No, I, I, and I think you touched on a really good point here. There was a, a great article that I read in Foreign Policy, I think it was a couple of years back, and the title was great. It said something along the lines of the Arab autocrats are the world's biggest Islamophobes and it's true it, it, they market this idea to washington they use islamophobia to their own advantage by presenting a false dichotomy to washington saying hey it's either us or the crazies you see on the news and you know they're essentially saying take your pick now one you know the idea that they put forward that you know th- democracy in the region would lead to some sort of religious extremism is completely off base Um, yes we saw the election of moderate mainstream political islamist groups in the places like egypt um, after the arab uprisings but you know the 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 muslim brotherhood wasn't able to govern very well uh it's 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 easy to be an opposition group but then, once you get into power and you actually have to put the money where your mouth is, you know, you can lose a lot of support. And you know, uh, I myself, uh, you know, uh, am a Muslim, but I, you know, I do not view the Muslim Brotherhood as uh, a terrorist organization or anything like that. I don't. But I also don't view, this idea of Islam as the solution as a practical solution. You know, it, 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 Islam is not a walmart one stop shop you know you need policies you need you need actual solutions to things, and without that, the people are going to you know turn elsewhere you know it 's not a matter of religiosity it 's a matter of can you address the the actual needs of the people so it seems and, like a misplaced thing I actually the most
0: surprising thing in this whole interview has been that you just told me you 're a Muslim, which I did not know. But uh, I, we definitely should have you back on to talk about that and, uh, sure. and other things because we're, we're we only have like thirty seconds left. But
2: no, of course. And uh, for the last thirty seconds, I just want to thank f- thank you and Samar for having me on. It was an absolute honor and pleasure. Okay. Well, that was John
0: Hoffman uh, dropping this uh, big surprise for me. I didn't know that, you know, again, that he's Muslim, but... I
1: didn't know either. Yeah. So it, sh- it shouldn't make it a difference, a
0: difference. <laughs> but, you know, he just sounds like so Southern, and then, you know, and it just shows you how universal Islam is, and, you know, Islam is an American religion, so... I'm glad to meet you. Salaamu Alaikum to John Hoffman from George Mason University. <laughs> Summer, thank you again uh, for organizing that and thanks for being on the show. And remember, listeners, next Thursday, we're going to be doing our fun drive here at WMF. So we're going to be counting on your support. Um, NPR News is next. And after that, it's uh, more great programming here. Have a great weekend. This is WMF Tampa and uh, goodbye.